Hi there, Romantics. Isabeau here. Just a quick disclaimer. We had to use our Zoom audio rather than our regular audio for about 33 minutes of this particular podcast episode. You will hear thunderclaps as well as a thunder-scared dog. Um, we appreciate your patience and thanks for listening as always. Hi gang, Morgan and Isabel here to share. We are looking for a new member for the Woe team to help us edit and cut episodes. If somebody you know or you yourself has experience with editing podcasts or even music and is interested in adding us to your portfolio, please reach out. Email woemansmail at gmail.com with the subject line editor pretty basic understanding of sound editing software is a good starting point. Yeah, we want this to be mutually beneficial, meaning we'll be able to offer some compensation for your time and are open to supporting any creative goals you have and see how we can work together. Again, email womance, that's W-H-O-A-M-A-N-C-E, mail at gmail.com with the subject line editor. Mail as in mail a letter, not mail as in mister. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to hearing from you. I'm Morgan. And I am Isabel. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About vacuous spaniels. About long country walks. About whatever the fucking nunchin is. About meeting your mysterious and wicked neighbor on the road. About not so much writing words as like a vibe. About gossip. About the one and only Dickie Arms. Unpleasure of interrupted kisses. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance bubbles. And ourselves. That was a good one. I know. Unfortunately, Vesper decided to attack the door. I'm going to look at my sound waves to see if that got picked up. Probably did. Probably did a little bit. So this episode is featuring a very special guest, my storm-panicked dog, Vesper. I'm going to let her out, I guess. I'll see what happens. All right, let's see. It can't be any worse. Uh, Yeah, sorry about that. You don't have to apologize for your storm panic dog. She realized there was nothing more appealing about being outside the office and has decided to settle at my feet under the desk. And oh, never mind. What a cursed evening uh, for recording. It's charming. I was listening to The Daily today and they were talking about what it was like to be in a closet with t-shirts hanging in their faces. It's the intimacy of podcasting. Welcome to how the sausage is made. It's like the jungle but different less sawdust <laughs> less sawdust well I me mean, it's after dark this is the kind of thing that happens after 10 a.m on saturdays it's the unfettered realism that you've been craving all along but in any case we are discussing something that's been on our to-do list for a really long time to be honest stay it on our to-do list because it sounded like super fucking boring and that is a georgette hire this week we are discussing venetia I've been calling her Yoriette because I feel like she would be slightly irked by me pronouncing her name with an Eastern European soft G. Probably. I've been pronouncing it Georgiette Hayer because that is how Richard Armitage, Dickie Arms, the hot dwarf himself, Thorin Oakenshield, that's how he pronounces it at the beginning of his audible. So Isabeau 
the reason we finally did a your yet hire is that you happened to read Venetia while on vacation. And I, I believe it was via the dulcet, aromatic tones of Dickie Arms himself. Listeners, imagine yourself alone in a Toyota Camry and you're driving on I-70, a terrible interstate highway in the flatlands of Missouri with the Mississippi behind you and nothing but your in-laws in front of you. What do you listen to? Who do you turn to in this moment of emotional turmoil? You turn to the dulcet, angelic tones of Richard Armitage. I feel like Vesper just started attacking the door as you were explaining that scenario. And I wish I could put some little puppy dog headphones on her and have her listen to Dickie Arms read a romance novel. She would be very comforted. Absolutely. That was how we discovered this book. Isn't that boring? And I initially checked it out from the library and then I was reading it on Sunday and I had so many chores to do around the house that I was like, I I'll just, I'll spring for the audiobook. And I discovered that Audible had removed the Dickie Arms reading because they are releasing a new reading. And I got it. I got my reading by Dickie Arms off of the Apple Books collection. And I've got to say, I feel like Audible's fucking blowing it because it was so good. It's so fucking good. I cannot, listeners, you've ta- we've talked about this recently where we feel like especially men who have to do the female voice seem to hate women and are really uncomfortable with words like quiver or whatever and it and they show their misogyny it just like comes out in their reading Richard Armitage doesn't hate women and simply goes for it and he makes every character different everyone has a nuance everyone is complicated he makes a symphony of voices give him an oscar give him whatever is the thing because he's incandescent in this book so he just kind of gentles his voice he doesn't do a voice and i'm gonna push back i'm gonna say is it that he's not a misogynist or is it that he is a professional fair he's a professional which makes him more professional than almost everyone else that i've ever listened to men and this is what i mean men doing women in romance novel audible versions because even women who are made to be ridiculous in this book because i'm not absenting georgia higher from the idea that she too is a misogynist even women that are made ridiculous in their dialogue are humanized in richard armitage's narration and that's quite a feat for a professional I'd go ahead and say like not just regular professional but like consummate. He's a little bit mean with the older ladies. Only two of them. I think he has a leg to stand on suing Gillian Anderson for her Margaret Thatcher impersonation, which he is employing constantly in this, but that like exhaling. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a good Gillian Anderson impression of her Margaret Thatcher. Ew, devil. Morgan, I think you have an unlooked for career in British audiobooks. I think it's time we stopped mocking women and started mocking the British. I think that's right. And I'll start with my audiobooks by like everything in a quotation mark is going to start with, hello then. I did see this great stitch on TikTok where this English person was like, I just found out that Americans call this melon a cantaloupe. And then an American stitched it was like, what do you mean they don't call it a topsy little laundry plop, pop, 
Villain. I was like, that's exactly right. They make fun of us for saying soccer. They invented the word soccer. It's like that thing your older sibling does where they like teach you a new slang term. And then when you use it, they're like, oh, stupid. God, I can't believe you said that. Terrible. And then you feel flat footed, even though you know that they are the ones that gave you the word. So then you're just gaslit. Yeah, exactly. England has been gaslighting every other country's use of English for a really long time. It's like, guys, I'm going to tell you what I told Anne Rice when she tried to sue those fan fiction authors. It doesn't belong to you, really. (laughs) Also, here's the other thing. English is a bastard of a language, which is like also 40% Germanic. So when people are like, no, I speak the King's English. I mean, you mean like Herr Wilhelm's English? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Also, can you think of anything lamer than being like specific about words? Like you're the person who's like, I can't use they pronouns whenever I'm talking about a singular person because I'm an English teacher and the language matters to me too much. Which brings us to Georgette Hire. Georgette Hire. Hello. We here at Womance decide to take on problematic authors head on and take them as they are, which is a problem. Like we did our AHA Shake Heartbreak series. And a lot of the reason for that is that like a lot of discourse gets thrown around like Georgette Heyer is problematic or chic romances are problematic, but they don't give specifics. And that makes it like not actually like a pedagogy, right? Like you got to tell people why something is a problem. And also like, why it's still powerful and pervasive to help people like think more critically because a Georgette Hire by any other name is still a Georgette Hire and she is considered the originator in a lot of circles of historical romance because keep in mind Jane Austen was writing contemporary romance right Jane Austen's writing contemporary Georgette Hire comes along in the 1950s she capitalizes on the popularity of Jane Austen reprints and she comes up with some new drawing room as they were called in the 1950s, romances. That does not absent her from the sins of being an avowed eugenicist and from there died in the wool racist and an anti-Semite. Eugenics is associated with the Nazi party, but the Nazis did not invent eugenics. Good old US of A. But really, what was underlying that little project was, how do I justify my elevated position in culture? So it was a lot of white men and women and women who were saying a hierarchy like a natural progression and there's somebody in existence right now who's at the top and as and this sounds a lot like nazism because the nazis were like yes that and also mysticism famous eugenicists and um, like we cannot escape this americans were really good at populating this idea americans were really really good at transporting this idea margaret sanger the famous founder of planned parenthood was also a huge proponent of eugenics which only brings to the fore why it's really important to contextualize everyone it's great that margaret sanger founded planned parenthood it's terrible that she believed in eugenics So in terms of Georgiette Heyer and showing our work so that we're not just speaking off the cuff, in her famous book, The Grand Sophie, published in 1950, one of her very first novels, she says, and I quote, that 
the antagonist, a thin, swarthy individual with long, greasy curls, a Semitic nose, and an ingratiating leer, Mr. Goldhanger, is the villain. And then she goes on to say, faced with large debts of honor, already in hot water with his formidable brother for far smaller debts that could he could not jump into the river or go to the Jews. Courtney Milan in 2019 said this thing that I think is really worthwhile. If we're going to talk about things that are weirdly ahistorical in Regency romance, it's super weird that Regency politics contain a lot more discussion about the corn laws, which we almost never talk about in real politics now. And there's wide agreement about which side of that you should be on. The slave trade, which was also huge in the Regency period. One thing we need to keep in mind is that a lot of romance authors today cut their teeth on Georgette Heyer's depiction of the era and George Georgette Heyer was a racist, and so her depiction of the era is deeply imperfect. Courtney Milan goes on to say Georgette Heyer was also a brilliant writer who has produced books that I still love, but the bias she brought as a writer of foundational texts in the subgenre is something that needs to be undone. Yeah. And I think that makes a really important point and something we talked about when we read The Sheik by E.M. Hull, which is like the fact that Georgette Heyer is racist, it doesn't matter if she wasn't a good writer. Like if these books weren't able to transcend their era, if these books weren't able to create an entire genre as we know it today, that is still the, that is, I hate to point it out, but I I think it speaks to its influence and its pervasiveness, its economic power, right? That doesn't exist. That The fact that she's a racist doesn't matter if we aren't still contextualizing her power. Yeah, if we're not still, yes, exactly. And like, and people who get upset about folks pointing out that Alexander Hamilton was very involved and profited very much off the slave trade are like missing the point. Like two things can be true. It's not really that they're inextricable. Like Georgette Heyer's belief system was very much the zeitgeist of England when she was popular. It was an acceptable way of thinking. But not only that, because we enjoy these works or because these works were influential or important in some way, we are super willing to like make excuses for it. I'm thinking specifically of the jazz singer, which is largely credited as being uh, one of the first talkies and one of the the reasons it's so controversial is that our lead actor at the very end does a blackface minstrel show. Now, here's the thing. That is done as a reveal at the end of the film. People have tried to excuse it by being like, oh, modern audiences are reading into the fact that this is a reveal. But no, like, why don't they show him in his minstrel act leading up to this? If that wasn't a reveal, why is the song that he sings as a child, dirty hands and dirty faces? And why is that the continued theme throughout the film? And if we look at the historical context at the time when the jazz singer was made and released, minstrel shows were already a taboo. He was very much being confrontational of the fact that the way he made his bread and butter was now considered a taboo act. By the time the jazz singer comes out, minstrel shows are already on the outs and are considered quite taboo. But we want to act like we've come, we want to believe that we ourselves have come far as a society. And we also want to excuse the fact that we've built our culture on racism and indeed uh, the enslavement of black folks. If Georgia Heyer was just a hack, <laughs> you know, in addition to being a racist, we wouldn't be here telling ourselves that in the 1950s, things were different. And it's the fact that she's a talented writer that we're willing to make excuses for her era. 
I think we're willing to make excuses for mid-century modern for a lot of reasons, not the least of which stuff that came out of it is stuff that we like. But your point is well taken, which is to say that because of her craft, because of her status as a grand dame, she cannot be ignored as a relic because she is consistently being informed. Richard Armitage fucking narrates several of her books, not just Venetia. And he is a modern actor. He's making money doing this. People are making money putting her books out in other ways. So like, it's not as Courtney Malone stated herself, Georgette Heyer is having a direct influence on the work that's getting published today. Absolutely. And drawing a straight line from Jane Austen to Georgette Heyer is not hard. And the other part of it is like, you know, people love to be like, well, Jane Austen was potentially an abolitionist because she's got this whole thing about tea. And I was like, first of all, if she were an abolitionist, it would have been much more clear. Second of all, no. And it's okay that she wasn't. There were people in her time that were. That doesn't, in effect, take away from the fact that her stories are good. Obviously, Mr. Darcy and Pemberley were benefiting from the slave trade and the fact that she doesn't mention it sucks. But like, doesn't take away from the fact that she invented Pride and Prejudice. These things, as you said, can coexist. The problem is that oftentimes we uplift one and really try to mitigate the other. Yeah. What are the motivations behind that? Exactly. What are the motivations? So here at Womance, we are not going to mitigate the other because it is indeed part and parcel of Georgiette Heyer's legacy in romance. If the RWA can award its very newest award, the Vivian, named for a black editor, to a book that makes the Lakota Sioux responsible for wounded knee in the year of our Lord, 2021, and retract it two days later, Georgette Heyer's legacy still exists. While you're stewing on this, I want to foreground our conversation with this idea out of Georgette Heyer, History and Historical Fiction, which unfortunately is paywalled. It's a 2021 <laughs> release, and the editors are Samantha J. Rayner and Kim Wilkins. In Chapter 12, Georgette Heyer, Guilty Pleasures, the first question of the introduction says, how can we as modern women explain to ourselves why we still read and love Georgette Heyer? I am asking this because I have a problem, that even after all these years, reading Georgette Heyer is still something of a guilty pleasure rather than an unalloyed one. The tension between these two feelings, guilt and pleasure, produces a state of discomfort. It also raises the question, what is the pleasure and what is the guilt? Is the guilt because of some aspects of the book which cause displeasure, yet we read and enjoy them all the same? Or is the guilt something to do with the pleasure itself? That's a really interesting question. In an attempt to unravel the complicated relationship between pleasure, displeasure, and what Freud called unpleasure, I will turn to my home discipline of psychoanalysis, in particular to Freud's theories of the pleasure principle. 
I will argue that the books can be experienced at different levels. The pleasure and displeasure take place at what may be called adult sublimated level and can be thought about using more or less rational criterion in the fields of aesthetics and ethics. However, the unpleasure or the guilty pleasure comes from deeper longings that have been repressed and that we experience them again produce feelings of guilt and shame. I was going to say, like, this is 100% a conversation that you and I would have had in our math precept. I I think it's 100% the conversation. This wasn't this our first paper. (laughs) This was. So none of us did it very well, but (laughs) I feel like there's a misinterpretation of the word unpleasure here. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think that's what Freud meant. Is this person published? In the Georgia Higher History and Historical Fiction, Chapter 12. But I think what's important about this, too, is like one of the ways we escape interrogation is by saying it's a guilty pleasure or don't yuck my yums. I know Georgette Hire is problematic. I know Star Wars has one black person. Yeah. I know you don't have to tell me I still love it. Don't yuck my yums. And I think like this is the first gate that's worth pulling down. Georgia Heyer is an incredible craftswoman. She is also a eugenicist and a racist and an anti-Semite. These things need to be held in tension. Yes, held in tension is correct. And I I assume you mean I in space tension within tension yes. in a way that is tense. Yes. You know, it's not irrelevant to today's text. When Freud was talking about unpleasure, he referred to the regularly practiced bestiality of farm workers. And here we find ourselves in a bucolic English countryside setting. We do undershore of Yorkshire, where (laughs) our titular heroine, Venetia, takes long country walks. By herself, because she's 25 years old. Who's going to want to tap that anyhow, even though she's pretty? Should we, re- we should read the back of the book at this point. Yes, this is your time to shine, Isabel. It is your turn to read the back of the book. 25-year-old Venetia Lanyons. I love that it starts with her age. I do too. I'm not going to lie. I think that's great. Venetia Lanyon's beauty is rivaled only by her sensibility. Intelligent, independent, her future seems safe and predictable. Lovely Venetia despairs of ever meeting the handsome hero of her romantic dreams, but is nearly resigned to her spinsterhood thanks to the enormous amount of responsibility she inherited with a Yorkshire estate and an invalid but precocious brother, Aubrey. She lives in comfortable seclusion, and she has never been further than Harrogate, nor enjoyed the lackluster attentions of any but her two wearisomely persistent suitors. She cannot accept to marry the respectable but dull Edward Yardley. She only will marry for love. Then her long-absent neighbor, 38-year-old Lord Jasper Damerel, returns home to Yorkshire. In one extraordinary encounter, she meets the infamous neighbor, who she knows only by reputation, a gamester, a shocking rake, and a man of sadly unsteady character. And before she knows better, she finds friendship with a libertine whose way of life has scandalized the North Riding for years. 
I don't know what that means. Lord Damerel finds Venetia to be the most truly engaging and wittily perverse female he has encountered in all his life, and determined to woo and win her, he pursues her with a passionate abandon that is soon the talk of the tongue. And after her encounter with the dashing, dangerous rake, Venetia's well-ordered life is turned upside down, and she embarks upon a courtship with him that scandalizes and horrifies her community. But Venetia has no intention of losing her heart to the rakish lord until she is sure that beneath his swashbuckling ways and shocking manners lies a tender heart belonging to her. And Lord Damerel would marry her in a heartbeat if he did not think it would ruin her. Then she discovers a shocking family secret that changes everything. It was therefore particularly provoking to find that occasion Lord Damerel could make up his mind to be idiotically noble. A reading! <laughs> Am I not just as good as Richard Armitage? <laughs> he doesn't read the back of the book, so I have no way of comparing. Fair, I appreciate that. I, I do feel like our conversation earlier about how you feel like it's true that Richard Armitage doesn't hate women. Doesn't hate women because he's good at reading romance novels out loud. Mm hmm is evocative of the conversation we had where just because people are good at something doesn't necessarily mean they're good all the way through. I think you've literally just shown me myself via my <laughs> own work and I both hate and love you for it because I cannot disagree at all and that sucks for me. <laughs> <clears throat> this is why you can't write real person fiction. Ever! And I do wish we could someday release our real person fiction episode. <laughs> I have it on my hard drive. I wonder, yeah, we should we should check it out soon. It's been a long time. Anywho. Anywho. You can't make fic out of real life people because real life people, we contain multitudes and some of those toods are bad attitudes. Anti-Semitic, eugenic, and racist. Uh, not to mention misogynistic, which is, which certainly not necessarily looking at you, Richard Armitage. I genuinely believe that you don't hate women. She genuinely needs to believe. This reminds me, I watched that documentary about the romance novel authors and they interviewed, they had this really like, whoa, thing where the director intercut conversations with a psychologist about the potentially like damaging affect of reading romance novels with the owners of the ripped bodice and the owners of the ripped bodice were saying people think that women are too stupid to know the difference between fantasy and real life and then they would cut to a psychologist that was like there isn't a part of our brain that designates fantasy and real life and they're like we would never pursue it in real life like just because we're turned on by it and then the psychologist is like so the principle of escalation though we can track that and that's why i'm worried about you isabeau listen 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 <laughs> my real person fic of richard armitage i'm gonna be white knuckling it through the next two years i think is only informed by the media he produces and people magazine people magazine oh yeah because people magazine believes in its pages or whatever that I consume. Isabel, you're not old enough to still be reading People magazine. I go to the dentist, Morgan. 
Anyway, <laughs> don't go to the dentist person. And you have this, you have more technology in your pocket than they had when they first went to the moon, allegedly. And you're going to go over and pick up a crusty ass People magazine that someone with like drooling because of the amount of cotton and numbing in their mouth has looked over, waiting for the second part of their procedure. Repping Dr. Sims on the north side. I want him to live his best life with Lee Pace. Like, there's this entire thing in People Magazine that Richard Armitage is who loves Lee Pace. and the People Magazine would never say that. I shared with you several blind items that said Richard Armitage and Lee Pace are together, are an item. People Magazine had an entire Thanksgiving spread. Yeah, because he went, they did not allege that they were lovers. People Magazine Mm. would never. People Magazine (laughs) would provide images that were posted by Lee Pace and Richard Armitage of them at Lee Pace's family home in Texas on Thanksgiving. I know what you're referring to because I sent it to you. That's all I'm saying. That's what I want for them. Which brings us to Venetia by Georgette Heyer. I have started to build this belief that romance novels were adventure books for gals with acceptable outcomes for the patriarchy, right? And that's why you see so much travel, and that's why you see the huge number of Viking heroes, pirate heroes, Highlander heroes, uh, sheiks indeed, Native Americans when in Indian romances as they were referred to. And so that was my theory. Venetia uh, really puts a thumb in the eye of that theory because this is a very domestic novel. And this is a novel that enjoys the domestic. And when I read it, I was struck by, when I started off reading it as a book, I was struck by a couple of things. First of all, the one-to-one ratio at which we see this storyline and these particular characters play out. I thought specifically of Whitney, My Love by Judith McNaught you know, the country romance uh, play out, but also the idea of this like more experienced rake, right, coming to heal uh, and participating in this courtship ritual with a heroine, right, who is considered... Almost on the shelf. Yeah, almost on the shelf and like a little bit unorthodox, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing that struck me, I had long heard lots of bad things about Georgette Heyer, like we talked about. And, you know, I had also kind of made this assumption that this was going to be like a really boring book and that her writing would be boring. And I've only read this one, but I have to say it is decidedly not boring. Decidedly not. It's very funny. Yeah, it's very funny. It's very much in line with Jane Austen. It's funny. It's fizzy. It's effervescent, which are basically the same thing, but witty even and the dialogue okay it's an effervescent book and the dialogue is fizzy it's also surprising to me that like wow isn't it like unorthodox that the heroine is 25 and then I'm like oh no Georgette Heyer set the orthodox so I don't know if I can really call it unorthodox that we have an older on the shelf heroine in Venetia and I would also say Venetia is probably Georgette Heyer's most oft cited most oft referenced text. It's the one I've heard about the most. It's not the most often cited in terms of the academic literature, but I think it is the most often recommended in terms of 
popular literature. What would you say is like the 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 big dog herf, herf. in academia? Uh, My Lady Sophie or Sylvester? Oh, I've heard a lot about Sylvester. But one of the things I noticed as I was reading is that I didn't note like a particular hatred for any group. And in fact, this is like an example of erasure, right? Because like all other like racial identities are not present, like all other uh, socioeconomic status. Well, I mean, there are the housekeepers, which um, your personal hero uh, depicts with um, Irish and Scottish accents. He sure does. Not mm-hmm. on accident. <laughs> Even though the book doesn't describe them. As yeah, either of those that's things. That's how he delineates them in the narrative. And I think that's like also telling of Britannia writ large. But also lack of representation by erasure writ large. There are no folks in this book who aren't white. And there are no folks in this book who aren't Anglican. But there are also no folks in this book that Georgette Hire likes. I would say beneath all of the bubble and tumble, our heroine Venetia kind of resents everyone she describes her spaniel as vacuous and because venetia is our central character and we spend a lot of time in her own perspective like i feel like comfortable saying like even though we do spend some time in the hero's perspective the text is venetia and venetia thinks that her younger brother who she's very close to Aubrey is a whiny baby intellectual she thinks her older brother Conway uh referencing our friend country Conway from the book that our dark passenger said was ripped directly off of Georgette Heyer Conway is is frivolous heffalump ne'er-do-well himbo yeah she's she doesn't care for him uh, her housekeepers are all busybodies, and her nurse is a busybody, and the old ladies in the town who she's, you know, friends with are all assholes, um, as well as their husbands and their daughters. And every, like, and I can't, like, it was the point at which she described her spaniel as vacuous that I was like, wow, she really hates everybody. And are you, could you be called an ist of any kind if you just hate everyone? Hmm. A misanthrope? (laughs) Yeah, that's not an ist. That's a ope. (laughs) That's a good point. I think that's really interesting because Venetia's character is depicted as smarter than everyone, prettier than everyone. She's called a non-parel. And one of the first things that I I noted was that she's a she's a country 10 and a town 7. Like she would have like definitely if she had had a come out in London, like she would have turned heads. But she's not a diamond of the first water. But in York, bitch is a non-parel. She has no competitors. She is it. It girl it. <laughs> Everyone's like, you're it. And she's like, am I? (laughs) I guess. I don't hate her in the way that I have a really hard time reading Emma. (laughs) And I think the reason why I don't have as hard a time with Venetia is A, this book is shorter. And B, she has Aubrey as a sort of balancing act of compassion, if not empathy. 
You know, I would say this heroine is easier to like than Emma because Emma was intentionally written as an unlikable heroine. Yes, Jane Austen famously said that she's written the most hateable character in the English language. Yeah, and this text seems to genuinely like Venetia. Yes, this text does. And this is where Elaine comes into play. Like, imagine the mean pretty girl being the main character of a Jane Austen novel unproblematized it would never happen i think this is like where our like slippage starts to be visible right like the certain belief systems are laid bare in the fact that venetia is written as a likable heroine and also certain like future functions of the mainstream of romance for decades to come and reasons for people writing off romance for decades to come come out of this thing of like Venetia who is the true asshole of this novel in a lot of ways even though like it's not like I disliked her but like imagine plopping her into any other heroine role in any other genre it's not gonna fucking work really because I feel like she does and I feel like because for example what what if you could plop her into a different text and she would work she feels very much like a more effervescent Jane in Pride and Prejudice. Like, if she's not an Emma... No! Yeah! Jane's not the main character! Jane's not the main character. Jane's not the, not the one we're supposed to identify with. No, but people do. People do. And I think one of the things about Venetia that's really interesting is that, like, she does have these, like, mean girl thoughts, but she's also always tempering them and what helps is that Aubrey's thoughts are meaner and more explicit Aubrey's dialogue is meaner and more explicit her thoughts are just as mean as Aubrey's and she regularly says Aubrey and I are of a mind and she talks about the fact that Aubrey isn't a bad like she tells our hero a lot of people think Aubrey is mean because he's honest. But it just matters to him more what a person's actions are rather than their words. Right. Her company is populated by vacuous people. Like Lady Denny sucks. Lord Denny sucks. Oswald, their oldest son, who has a puppy love tundra for Venetia, who is nine years his senior, like sucks super hard. And she does such a good job of infantilizing him. And also she paints a picture for him at one point when she rebuffs his advances. And she's like, when you remember me, if at all, which you probably won't, remember me fondly, but like there will be a woman that you love better. This isn't love. You're making a cake of yourself because there are no other women in the county. Fucking stop. And I think one of the things that's hard for Venetia is she's like the only adult in the room and she's been the only adult in the room for a long time. But the book is from her perspective. Can we trust Venetia to see herself as she is? Can we see the book's other perspective is our hero. Can we trust the guy who wants to fuck her to see her as she is? I mean, I did. So I was like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like nobody came around in the text to make me believe that their versions of what was happening in the world wasn't true. Yardley didn't make believe make me believe that. Mr. Henley didn't make me believe that. Like nobody right. showed up to 
give me this sense that I was with an unreliable narrator. But you, as a modern reader, right, and actually probably people who read Venetia at the time, 1958, can look at the facts of like why Venetia looks down on these other people and realize that they're kind of shabby in Venetia's words. Like, why does she look down on Lady Denny? Lady Denny seems open-minded. Like, she meets our hero, even though he has this reputation for throwing an orgy in the town. But Lady Denny doesn't want to shake his hand. She does, though. When Lady Denny meets him, she initially doesn't want to shake his hand, and then she gets to know him, and she's like, you know what, he seems okay, which seems fair to me. You can come to the table with assumptions as long as you're willing to change your assumptions. But Lady Denny doesn't change. Whenever she finds out that her son assaulted our heroine, Lady Denny apologizes to our heroine. She also apologizes to our hero. She says, I made some assumptions when he was upset, and I'm sorry about that. Lady Denny seems like a pretty cool person. She seems okay. And, like, I'd like to beep beep this, like, Lady Denny stan. Where it's like, yeah, she does indeed come around to the idea of Lord Damerel, right? Where, like, he has this ignominious past. But fucking Lady Denny is the one who writes to the London relatives and is like, you need to stop the amour that is happening between Venetia and Damerel because he's serious about her. He's going to reform his rake ways and she's already in love with him. If you do not intervene, they they will marry each other. It is her. She doesn't say he's going to reform his rake ways. That's the whole point of writing the letter. She does. She writes the letter and she's like, this will ruin Venetia forever. Yeah, but she doesn't say he's going to reform his rake ways. It'll ruin Venetia. Which means that she never really reformed her idea about him to begin with because she still writes this shitty letter. Her only project is protecting Venetia from having to own up to the sins of her mother, right? And she's like, we don't need to... Sure, but protecting Venetia means infantilizing her. It does, but it's like, it doesn't mean that she doesn't see our hero as like a whole person. Sure, but not good enough to be with Venetia, even though they both choose it. Because she's not writing about who he is as a person. She's writing about his reputation. Sure, but she doesn't trust either his reputation, his aunt or Venetia to allow them to have a future together, which says that she cares more about stuff that isn't real than Venetia does. Listen, dude. You can't read a Regency romance and not understand the very tangible material fact of a reputation. Totally. You can't say it's not real. It is real. Lady Denny writes to the London relatives about the very real threat on our heroine's very ability to survive based on her reputation. Totally. But if she marries Damerel, she'll be a marchioness. And she's like, it's worse to be the marchioness of an infamous rake than it is to be a spinster. Lady Denny makes that call. Why does she say that? What's the comparison? Because her mother lays it out for her and her aunt lays it out for her. She will become completely socially isolated. Yeah. And Venetia says, dudes, 
am already socially isolated. Venetia makes that point, but that's not how Lady Denny sees it. Lady Denny sees it as like, she is my friend. We go out. She goes out and she's respected. She sees it wrong because Lady Denny... Wrong doesn't make her a bad person. I'm not saying Lady Denny's a bad person, but Lady Denny sees it in her own perspective. And I think this book does a really good job of explaining that where Lady Denny 100% only wants Venetia's happiness. But what Lady Denny doesn't fucking get is that Venetia socializes with the Denny's and the Yardleys. She doesn't have social cachet in any way. So the idea that she will be socially ostracized but have the man that inspires her intellectually, sexually, and socially, that that isn't a fucking hard sell because right now she socializes with two families with two idiotic sons. I don't know, Lady Denny. What is society if it's just the Denny's and the Yardley's? What you're not describing is the fact that Venetia has been in London for a month at this point. She wants to establish her own house and she has been able to do stuff like go to the theater. She has been able to do stuff like go to restaurants, go to bars because she can find people to accompany her. That would be lost to her. Her mother goes to the theater and she's been socially ostracized. Her mother goes to very fancy places. Her mother lives in Paris. Her mother lives in a different country. But when she comes to London, she still has, she's socially ostracized, that's true, but she still enjoys the things that you're talking about. In terms of Venetia's experience, what Lady Denny's laying out doesn't feel like social ostracism because Venetia's already been socially ostracized by her eccentric weirdo father in York. She hasn't been ostracized, she's been isolated. Sure, but like intention is different, but outcome isn't. But the outcome is she can still go to London and go to the theater and not be ostracized like her mother. Think about what the experience of watching her mother is to her aunt versus what it's like for her aunt to watch her as an unmarried 25-year-old in London today. Anyways, she's about to get, she has the option to marry like, what's his name? Mr. Yardley. Yardley, Thomas Yardley. Her aunt believes that she's going to marry Thomas Yardley. Like her aunt genuinely believes that that's the alternative. She doesn't see the alternative as not being married and being a spinster. She sees Thomas Yardley, country gentleman, in her own hometown where she can continue her life and her comfort level that she's used to versus marrying this Marquess and like no one else. Like that's going to be her whole life. She's not going to be able to do. And if she married Thomas, she could come visit her aunt and it wouldn't be a big to do for her to go to the theater. When her mother walks into the theater and our heroine realizes her mother isn't dead, everyone stares. People make the point that Venetia is not her mother. Like her mother lives for the drama. And has always lived for the drama. And that's why she's made the choices she's made. Further, her mother lives in Paris where people don't understand her full context. And she, in fact, chooses to spend most of her life in a context where she's not isolated. Our heroine doesn't have that option to marry our hero and live in Paris because she has to take care of her younger brother. Well, he's he's about to go to Cambridge. So like that. But she was going to move to London to help take care of him while he was at Cambridge. She was going to move to London while he was studying to go to Cambridge for the year because he couldn't go to Eton because of his disability. Why did she do that if she didn't feel responsible for her brother? She does feel really responsible for her baby brother, Aubrey. That's not in question. 
What is in question is this idea of intent versus outcome as it relates to her aunt. Henley has no ability to envision a life for Venetia where she, A, because her father left her an income, she can run her own house in London, get the very best tutors for Aubrey so that he can be set up for Cambridge, which is what her intent was before she met Damarel. And then Damarel shows up on the scene and she's like, oh wait, I too could have romantic happiness. She had been envisioning her life as spinster aunt up until this point. And then Henley, who didn't even know who Yardley was until he followed Venetia to London after Damarel throws her off, is like, whoa, we've got like an actual suitor on board. But she only envisions Yardley. She doesn't give Venetia the space to envision what Venetia has already tried to put into place with the money that Venetia already has and the life that Venetia has already lived as the mistress of Undershore for the last five years while her brother Conway was fighting Napoleon in France. Henley is not a thorough resource as far as I am concerned on that front. On the second front, on viewing who Venetia thought was a dead mom, who's actually an ostracized social mom, it's like the fact that Henley has to leave the theater and that Venetia's mom doesn't, who is bearing the consequences of ostracism? literally in that scene because it's not Venetia's mom who gets to wear the daffinous silk that she wants to wear is in the company of the noble assemblage of Lambert whoever whoever she gets to stay at the hotel that just recently housed the fucking czar of Russia you know where Mrs. Henley is staying not that fucking hotel and so in terms of actual intent versus outcome Venetia is then witness to what social ostracism is, which is isolation. But it's glorious isolation for Venetia's mother. And you're right, she gets to retreat to Paris. She doesn't have to deal with London's worst pernicious kind of gossip. But I argue Damarel's money would also afford Venetia that. So first of all, yeah, Henley isn't staying in the hotel because she's staying in her giant fucking house in London because she's married to a duke. Henley leaves because she feels shame that Venetia's mother does not feel because we've talked about the fact that Henley and Venetia or Venetia's aunt and Venetia's mother experience the world differently, right? Period. Further, we're talking about the fact that Lady Denny as a tentpole for indicating that the text isn't totally reliable as an interpreter of either the like historicism kind and is in fact an example of the unkindness of Venetia's perspective. Lady Denny or Lady Henley? Lady Denny. We were talking about Lady Denny. We were talking about her aunt Henley. No, we were talking about Lady Denny and you transferred it over to Henley. We were talking about Lady Denny because Lady Denny was the one who wouldn't shake the hero's hand. And I said Lady Denny came around to understanding him as a whole person. Her motivations for separating our heroine from the hero is the fact that she doesn't want the heroine to experience the kind of ostracization that her mother experiences when she comes to London. And that she does have, demonstrably, because of that, 
she does have what she understands to be Venetia's best interest at heart. Venetia, the text itself, does not honor that fact. Venetia, the text itself, sees her as meddlesome and vapid, as opposed to someone who maybe understands the nuances of the situation better than Venetia does herself. Venetia hasn't lived long enough to experience the actual, like, recriminations of what it means to be a scarlet woman i don't think that's true i think venetia at 25 has lived long enough i think it's the fact that her father has isolated her on purpose and other people have allowed that to happen which allows lady denny and lady henley to say that she is this innocent which her age would not belie and like Venetia makes that point where she's like, women in who are 25 in London are not being discussed in the way that you're discussing me. And they're like, well, yeah, they're not innocent. They've been living in the metropole this whole time. Right. I, I take that point. And I also take the point that like Lady Denny does in her way come around to Damarell. However, I don't think the fact that Lady Denny is like, this is what social ostracism looks like is taking into account that the outcome of Venetia's eccentric father is that she has been socially isolated, right? Social ostracism and social isolation as it pertains to Venetia are not different, which is what allows Venetia to be like, this all feels like hypocrisy. Well, it allows Venetia to think that, but I'm saying like that's not a fair, it's not fair for the book to say Venetia is right in that. And the book doesn't ever question Venetia's correctness. Venetia is always on the track headed towards her destiny. Everyone else who has a different perspective on that is understood as this And not even as like a problematic figure or a misinformed figure or an underinformed figure. They're presented in the text itself as something like shallow, as something like vapid, as something like less than. I think they're presented as hypocrites. Sure, they're presented as hypocrites, but they're still presented as less than. I don't think Lady Denny is a hypocrite. And I think if the text was at all critical of our main character, Venetia, that would be clear. And to Lady Denny, a person who has lived her life in a certain way, isolation and ostracization are very different. And isolation is much preferred to ostracization. But the text doesn't give any credence to the fact that Lady Denny has good intentions. At best, the text gives credence to the fact that Lady Denny has foolish intentions. I think the book understands Lady Denny as trying to help Venetia. I think it understands her as misguided. And I think it understands that her tendre for Venetia is real. But that the fact that she understands isolation and ostracism as different is indeed hypocritical, potentially even wrong. And I think that's where Venetia comes in as this bright ray of educated can quote Shakespeare and Marlowe and Cicero for fuck's sake as a space of like a person who knows too much to be checked 
and too little of society by the virtue of her upbringing to understand the real dangers that Denny and Henley are presenting to her because they aren't real. They're as fake to her as the wicked barren pirate that she invented with Aubrey when they were walking around his lands. And I think that in itself is a critique of like the way that we keep women in like a false sense of innocence especially in 1958. I don't understand Mrs. Denny or Mrs. Henley as uncompassionate creatures. I do understand them as foolish ones. I understand them as hypocritical ones. I understand the text as positioning them as foolish and hypocritical, and I think it owes a lot to like the underlying misogyny of the text. And I'll go to the chapter that we are in where we are from Mrs. Denny's perspective, and she's trying to ask her husband to intervene on her behalf and speak to our hero to prevent him from pursuing his relationship with Venetia any further. And the text repeatedly talks about how she's desperate and how her husband is pointing out that it's none of their business, and that this is all a very interesting story, but it's nothing more than a story. So the text positions Lady Denny's actions as irrational. According to her husband, but I don't think the text understands it that way. Why would the text bother then? Why would the text bother with that chapter? Why would the text bother with showing an argument that ultimately has no relevant outcome because... The text could have just had Lady Denny send that letter to her family without having this conversation with her husband that frames her as irrational. I feel like that's a surface understanding of what's happening because like the way that I took that conversation is that this is a marriage of unequals, which then puts Damarel and Venetia, who are in conversation as equals, as the thing that is the most wanted. Right. And so here's a version of partnership that isn't working. Right. We have Lady Denny who has real fucking concerns, who's being rebuffed by her husband in ways that are really insulting, that like are undeserved. And the text gives us this chapter to understand what a marriage of unequals would look like, what Venetia married to Thomas Yardley might look like. It can be that, but it can also be the other thing because guess what? That conversation, the ultimate result of it, right? Lady Denny writing that letter to Venetia's family is problematized by the text, is considered like a fucked up thing to do. A thing that happened. It's the obstacle. Yeah, a thing that happened that threw a wrench into Venetia's bicycle wheel on her way to her destiny. And the fact that it the ultimate outcome of this conversation between unequals is that a woman behaved in an ira- continued to behave in an irrational way and sent this letter for something that has been argued is none of her business and has actually had detrimental effects on our heroine, then I think it does position Lady Denny as all of the things her husband describes her as. Potentially, but I also think like this is a space where it's like, if your concerns had been taken more rationally, maybe you wouldn't have taken the escalating step. Sure, but it doesn't, and she does, and it does fuck up the love story, right? And it does become the obstacle. And that's why I feel like the book kind of believes that Lady Denny is an irrational, bored, and not just a hypocritical and foolish, but a less than person. And I think this book does the thing 
of pick me, which has been around for so long, wherein our heroine has to be positioned as the greatest of all women, the most rational of all women, the woman who is most capable and deserving of a happily ever after in order for her to achieve that end, as opposed to being like the more sensitive, thorough, thought out, every character in this book has clear understandable motivations every character in this book is a whole is a person deserving of compassion right and not just because they're a character i think this book really centers venetia as like heroine capital h capital e capital r i don't think there's any like she is so she is such a non-pareil non-pareil She's such a non-pareil. Like the book is named for her. Like, I don't, like, this criticism in and of itself. Yeah, but that indicates that there's something else going on. There are plenty of books that are named for heroines, and it still has the time to be compassionate towards other characters. I'm saying in this text, lack of compassion for other characters, and the fact that Venetia seems to dislike everyone else. Venetia is an Emma. But when our when Jane Austen writes Emma, she's an unlikable character. When Georgette Heyer writes Emma, she is a non-pareil, <laughs> right? And I think that's super indicative of like Emma's not that was bad form, Emma. Emma is not a non-pareil. Emma's a non-pareil too. Incident in Emma comes in the very last five chapters. Venetia doesn't have doesn't have a humbling. That's true. Emma is a non-pareil in her own head. She's a non-pareil in her county. Venetia is a non-pareil in the text, is what I'm saying. Sure. I hear what you're saying. I disagree with you. Can you point out a time when Venetia is... Curbed? Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of times where Venetia is curbed. And I think part of what is curbing Venetia specifically and why it doesn't function the way as Mr. Knightley curbing Emma functions is because it's Mr. Yardley. And there always moves to propriety. And this book does not believe that propriety or reputation are things that are worth protecting. Because Venetia, on the outside at least is always kind to Lady Denny and Lady Henley and everyone that she comes across, which is different than Emma. Even in her own mind, when she's not being as kind as maybe she could be, especially when it comes to Conway's wife, right, who shows up totally unannounced and is the new mistress of Undershore. Venetia tries really hard to make a space for her sister-in-law, who's the new mistress of the house, and for her pernicious mother. And the fact that, like, Venetia tries hard and tries to get Aubrey to give her a fair chance at it, and it doesn't go at all, sucks. But she's constantly trying to fix a way for Conway's totally unannounced wife, who's also pregnant, to have a way to function at Undershore 
speaks to Venetia not being a shitty person. And again, I don't I don't care if Venetia is a shitty person or not. Like I think this book understands her as very likable, but this book understands propriety as a problem. And the fact that Venetia doesn't want to participate in it is heroized. Whereas like Lady Denny and Lady Henley, who are indeed enslaved by propriety, are written as less sympathetic than Venetia. But I think the idea in 1814 or 1958 that propriety is a problem doesn't really feel very revolutionary. It just kind of feels true. Granted, this text does treat propriety as a problem. We're talking about her status as a nonpareil, right? And you point out the fact that regardless of what she thinks, she always says and does the does the right thing, right? But she talks early in the text The text asserts that our heroine and our hero both like and respect her younger brother and have this deeper understanding of him because he is disliked by so many people because he doesn't judge a person based on the things they say, but he judges a person based on the things they think. And because of that... That actually has practical implications because Aubrey is indeed disabled. But I'm saying the text asserts that what is in your mind is what makes you a good person. Do you think that Venetia is kind to people, is generous to people in her mind, in the perspective that we get? More so than Mr. Yardley or Oswald Denny. But the fact that everyone's a bad person doesn't mean no one's a bad person. And like you can't say like Thomas is also an asshole. So that means Venetia isn't an asshole. Venetia is an asshole in her mind. (laughs) Like she thinks really mean, unfair things about people. She also is undermining them at all times and elevating her own status, right? Whenever we're in Venetia's perspective, as with all human beings, Like, she is the hero, but she never, like, second guesses herself except for taking our hero at his word when he casts her out. And then she's like, oh, I was so silly. I should have realized that something else was going on. And and I think that the book goes out of its way to create this character that judges people much more on, like, what's in their mind and then makes the point that it doesn't matter so much what people say as what they think and then has this heroine thinking these things that in 2021 we as readers who get to enjoy you know far more nuanced texts or have enjoyed you know like if you read Emma for example right like we are able to discern the fact that Venetia is kind of a dick right but the book doesn't understand Venetia as a dick Venetia is infallible in the text And I think that's a problem because Venetia does not have a lot of compassion or generosity. And I think what's happening in the text is belying a real lack of compassion and generosity in the hand that wrote it, which we can see a lot of lack of compassion and generosity. And so what I'm saying is even in a text where we don't have like racialized others, you can still see some of the waves of that worldview. Sure. I will grant that Venetia is granitized, right? Like she has a real... mm, Granitized? Yeah, like I think that she has a real sense of purpose, but I also think part of this problem that you're describing, right, where she is 
unkind and that she undermines the other women specifically because she also undermines the other men but you don't seem to have a problem with that i do she's a dick to oswald i mean well but even in her perspective of thomas and oswald she's more forgiving of them than she is of other women i think the text is more forgiving of them than of the women and i think that is epinomis of what you're talking about But I think the thing that is both true and pernicious about this novel is that Lady Denny and Lady Henley are also feeling infallible about what they're saying. They don't admit that a 25-year-old who's been in charge of an entire fucking estate and her baby brother could be in charge of her own feelings and that they function to infantilize Venetia, which would be incredibly frustrating. And so even as Venetia understands them as passionately as she can, as obstacles to her truest love, they function as unquestioning obstacles. Lady Henley never ever admits that she might be wrong. Lady Denny never admits that she could be wrong. And so the thing that you're ascribing to Venetia could easily be ascribed to both the other women in this text that Venetia paints uncompassionately. But why write them that way? Because that's how Venetia sees them. Exactly. But that's also maybe how they are. You know what I mean? Like that's like This book is called Venetia. It's from Venetia's perspective. There's nothing that comes along to make me believe that Venetia's perspective is so out of whack as to believe that Lady... Of course that's how they are. They're fictional characters. And the only reference we have for them is Venetia's perspective told through this text. But we've read unreliable narrators in romance before. And they've been pointed out as unreliable. Venetia is never acknowledged as an unreliable narrator. Sure, but Lady Denny and Lady Henley also have the same fault that you're ascribing to Venetia. But I'm not talking, the book isn't like their story. The book is Venetia's story, which means the text is from Venetia's perspective. Right, but you're saying that this is a real problem on Venetia's part, but like why isn't it a problem on the text part in general? It is. Um, That's what I'm saying. We can ascribe the problems of the text via Venetia's perspective. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does it? Or you can say no and we can move on as well. I mean, I think these women are boxed in by propriety and a lack of understanding of Venetia as a person versus intent and outcome and social isolation versus social ostracization. But I think it's important to note that like Venetia is an unreliable narrator even if the text doesn't acknowledge her as such. And I think that's one of the problems of this book. And she can be identified as an unreliable narrator because of the way she thinks and talks about other people, even though we're supposed to understand her as likable. Sure, but I would push back on that in that I don't think she's unreliable because other characters also confirm her version of events including Yardley and Oswald Denny and Aubrey her version of events meaning like her interpretations of the intentions of Lady Denny and Lady Henley yes okay okay whoa no another two-parter Please tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion of Isabel and Morgan's thoughts on Venetia. 
Woli guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.